Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 131. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 131 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Ronan Chris Murphy. Uh, you might know him from the recording boot camp that takes place in Italy or the one in France or the one in LA. And he's worked with, man, he's worked with some really, really cool people. King Crimson, Steve Morse, uh, Terry Bozio, Steve Stevens, uh, Tony Levin, lots of different people. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing about him. He used to be in a band long ago in the DC uh, hardcore scene called Freak Baby, which was also the first band of Dave Grohl, but Dave Grohl joined after Ronan quit. <laughs> so very few degrees of separation going on there. Yeah. So Ronan Chris Murphy coming up. I was on the uh, Gearsluts uh, subform that we sponsor called Audio Life, and I was looking through some of the health-related things and just kind of seeing what people are posting. And... Uh, there's one about sitting on your ass all the time. Um, uh, James Lugo, who moderates that part of the forum that has to do with uh, health, uh, he posted it and uh, was talking about weight loss and letting your letting your health get away from you as, as you sit behind your computer, behind your console, whatever you do. I am not a nutritionist. I'm not a doctor. So obviously you take this however you want to take it. But here's a couple things that are working for me. You may call bullshit on them and you may say, no, nah, that's not going to work for me. I don't want to do that. But here's some things that I do. Well, you know, you know how much coffee I drink. I talk about that all the time. I try to offset that amount of coffee I drink with glasses of water, big, you know, big pint glasses. Use that, you know, for drinking water just constantly. Also spending a lot of time, you know, sitting the temptation to, especially when you're working at home, the temptation to snack is incredible. And I find myself going into the kitchen, snooping around, going, hmm, what should I eat? What should I eat? Not because I'm hungry, just because I just want to eat something. So I have been prone to, I don't know, I think it's, I think one would call it low blood sugar or hypoglycemia in the past, where if I eat sugar all the time, then at some point my body starts getting all crazy and shaky if I don't eat some more sugar or, you know, something like that. Those of you who are more health conscious or more aware of this probably have a name for it. But anyways, it's not diabetes. I know that. Um, so what I've gotten in the habit of doing is we live a couple miles from a Trader Joe's. So I buy these bags of carrots and I buy hummus and I'll just, I'll pound through a bag of carrots. So, you know, just trying to avoid sitting there eating chips or candy or any kind of crap food like that i think you know it's really important you want to be on this planet for as long as possible getting as much done as you can so obviously sitting on your ass and eating candy and chips and drinking diet soft drinks is not really going to give you you know great longevity consider drinking more water eating more vegetables and uh, snack on that stuff uh, a bag of sweet peppers you know, totally, you know, some of you may say, I don't, I don't want to eat sweet peppers. Those are hot. They're not hot. They're totally not hot. They're very flavorful. Any kind of vegetable like that. I think, you know, just try it out, try it out for 30 days and see what the difference is. Try to eliminate the, the processed sugar. I, I talked about processed sugar a lot in my interview uh, with Michael Beinhorn. So be sure and check that out. But uh, yeah, that, that shit's just bad for you. And I do have a, a friend who died of cancer uh, a few years ago at that point in his cancer that, you know, he was taking, you know, visitors to, you know, pay their respects and say hello and or goodbye in this case. And uh, he told me, he said, watch the sugar, man, it'll kill you. And uh, so that always sat with me. So, and also I think it's good. You get, you got to get up and walk around. So like if something's rendering or printing or whatever you want to call it, you're waiting for something to download get up walk around stretch take a walk outside go check the mail take an extra leisurely stroll to check the mail one of my favorite things about working at outside studios is that uh, it's fun to take a break and go outside for a coffee or, or for food and then uh, come back and, and get back to work but 
Yeah, you just got to mix it up. If you just, I know how myopic we all can get and we just kind of sit there and go, I'm going to work on this until it's done. And then we get to a point where, you know, we can't hear anything to save our life because we've lost all objectivity. So this is a good chance for you to like, you know, change your perspective. Uh, it also helps, I think, with eyesight too. If you're, you know, constantly looking at a screen, you know, gives you a chance to go outside and look at the sky and, you know, do that. So that's me just kind of harping on the health issue because, you know, it's very easy to sit around and get overweight and uh, not do anything. And eventually it catches up to you. And uh, we don't want that to happen. So there's your health rant for the day. And, you know, just just one more thing to conclude on that or to, to round that out is to say that I know a lot of you are like, can't do it without my diet soft drinks. So here's a thought. Instead of drinking those, buy yourself some cans of sparkling water. If you like that habit of cracking the can open and drinking a carbonated beverage uh, that's not beer, um, you know, replace it with uh, sparkling water. And I think you'll find that your health will probably be in a lot better shape in the long term. So something to consider. Obviously, do whatever the hell you want because it's your life. And I'm just here to offer up suggestions based on my own experience. So there you go. Okay, so here's a quandary that I'm in right now that I'm trying to figure out, and maybe you all can help me out with this. I have a few items here on my desk. I have an old Ikea desk that I've got uh, on it. I've got a Slate, um, a Raven MTI, a first-generation MTI on it, an Avid Artist Mix, and a SoftTube Console One. And I've got a, an, a, an Apollo um, Twin controlling my Apollos on the other part of the room, keyboard, mouse, and it's all just kind of cluttered here, and I've just been struggling with finding a solution. I've gone online and I've tried to find some furniture solutions, and obviously there's you know there's a million companies out there that have some type of uh, rack based uh, desk producer desk composer desk whatever they want to call them solos doubles you know it runs the gamut anyway. Cannot find a solution that is ideal, uh, so. I, I, I've hunted and hunted and hunted and I've kind of, you know, played around with the placement of everything and trying to, you know, figure out how I'm going to, how I'm going to do it. But, um, long story short, I ended up just calling a uh, former WCA guest, Brian Hood, who built tiny telephone studios in Oakland and just said, Brian, I'm stuck. I'm trying to figure out the solution. And he said, send me some pictures of what you got. Send me some pictures of the furniture you're looking at. Let me get my brain working on it. You know, and he said, it's not going to be cheap, but it's not going to be just an off the shelf thing. It'll be customized for you. We, I can make you generally whatever you want me to make. So trying to brainstorm how that's going to work. If there are furniture solutions that uh, work for you all that, you know, you've come up with, um, you know, send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Let me know what's worked for you. I'd love to see some ideas. If you got pictures of your studio, uh, send them over. I'm curious how you've made it work. Even if it's an off the shelf solution, send it over and let me see. And even if it's a non you know, a non-studio furniture solution, even better. I would love to see that. I love to, you know, go to places like CB2 and IKEA and some of these uh, big box furniture type places and look around and find alternative solutions to the typical studio, not only decoration, but also just uh, the functional furniture that we use in a studio. Hence the reason I have this Ikea desk. It's this cheap, cheap desk. But I got to tell you, it's worked up until this point, but I'm getting to a point where I've got some stuff in front of me that I'm using. So I kind of need it to change a bit. So yeah, send me your solutions. Uh, before we get into our interview with Chris, I want to make sure that you do know that our friends over at Universal Audio are having uh, a promotion. And if you go to uaudio.com, which I'm doing right now, oh, see, I spelled it wrong, uaudio.com. Okay. And if you scroll down part ways to the Apollo Rack Dream Studio area, you will see that they are doing a giveaway of plugins. So, you know, depending on what you buy, you know, if you buy one Apollo, two Apollos, three Apollos, you can get um, in upwards in of uh, $3,500 or uh, 3,500 euros or 2,600 pounds worth of plugins from them. And it's some great stuff, some great stuff to choose from. So have a look at that. Go on over there, check it out. You know, I'm a, a big UA supporter and a fan. Many people are, but check it out. See what you think. Anyways, that's it. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. 
I will stop talking and we will get into it here with Ronan Chris Murphy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to have you on. was really digging into what you got going on with Recording Boot Camp and your YouTube channel. And I was checking out some of your videos and you got a lot going on. Yeah, I keep pretty busy. <laughs> Let me go back to the beginning a little bit. Particularly fascinated by the fact that you have ties to D.C. Were you brought up there? Yeah, I was actually born in Washington, D.C. I, I grew up right across the river in Arlington. So it was a really good time to be there because, uh, you know, I was into punk and hardcore, still am. And, you know, really in the United States, if you were into that stuff, the coolest places to be were Los Angeles or D.C., so, you know, I was pretty lucky to be in D.C. and, you know, getting to see a lot of these kind of now legendary bands play, you know, parties in people's basements and things like that. Well, of course, we've had the great Don Z and Tara yeah. on Working Class Audio. Oh, fantastic. And my fascination partly stems from the fact that the D.C. hardcore scene, which, you know, I've always been a big Fugazi fan and Minor Threat and Rites of Spring and Discord Records fan. And so yep. <laughs> to see that you were, you were um, in the heart of it, that's that's pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, certainly at the time I wasn't any kind of big player, but I was a, you know, certainly in the scene and getting to see all those bands. It was re a really, really good, amazing, fervent time of, you know, music and creativity in DC. Yeah, I was very lucky to be a part of it. I'm curious about what you may have learned from that experience of growing up in that scene, obviously with Discord Records and and all those bands that we just named, the DIY ethic, it's the the gas that the whole thing runs on. Yeah, I would say that being a part of that, I mean, kind of informed everything I did since then because, you know, DIY was such a just normal, typical thing that you did. And, you know, I'm, you know, I was in some yappy little punk rock band that nobody cared about. We wanted shows. All right. I got into booking shows. You know, nobody wanted to put our stuff out. So I, you know, kind of created my own label. I have to do that in air quotes because, you know, we didn't do much anything too much beyond putting out our own band stuff. But there really was this sense of, okay, nobody's doing this for us. Let's make it happen. And I, I certainly wasn't unique in doing that. It just, when everybody around you is operating that way, uh, it, it kind of rubs off and it's, become sort of the standard way of working. You know, I still think today, you know, when, you know, I started doing more things, you know, st I started working more as a player and things like that, you know, we didn't have a booking agent. So I was booking tours, you know, we didn't have a publicist. So I ended up being the publicist and moving forward and getting into the recording side of things. It's like, all right, great. Nobody's, uh, <laughs> no record companies are hiring me to make records. Let me go and figure out a way that I can make records. That kind of DIY DC ethic is is still to this day kind of part of like every day of my life. We worked with some heavy guys, Steve Morris, Terry Bozio, Tony Levin. Those are some s serious players. I'm curious how you came into working with guys like that. I think it's just I've, that I've always been really excited and interested in kind of creative people and people trying to push creative boundaries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I get drawn to those people and, you know, I've just always been really proactive about trying to make stuff happen. You know, where I kind of parlayed into like that particular group of people was, uh, you know, just by virtue of people I'd run into in the subway and things like that, uh, ended up sort of getting into the sort of King Crimson universe a little bit and then connected with their guitar player, Robert Fripp. Uh, and then ended up working with King Crimson. And, you know, when you're sort of working with like the kings of prog rock, it's a little easier to open up doors for other people kind of in that world. Once I sort of got tapped into that and started doing a lot of work with King Crimson, you know, I started, again, getting a lot more of access to a lot more of those, those people, labels, bringing me, bringing uh, me in to do stuff. And it, it was almost prog rock to a fault for a while <laughs> because... You know, it's, um, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's like, that's all the calls I was getting for a while. And, you know, because people would be like, oh yeah, you know, I just kind of do folk songs. You wouldn't care about me. And I'm like, Neil Young is the reason I'm a musician. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up in the punk scene and Neil Young is the reason I became a musician. And, uh, so I actually, for a while had to actively 
get away from a lot of the progressive rock kind of stuff uh, just because that's all I was getting for a while. And I get really kind of stir crazy if I if I work just in one genre for too long. So, you know, if I'm doing like a lot of jazz for a while, like I got to go do metal. If I'm doing like too much of that, like, oh, I got to go do some folky singer songwriter stuff or some world music stuff. And, you know, you, you probably make more money just being the guy or gal who does that genre of music. But a lot of my friends who are the guy or gal for that genre of music, they don't seem to like going to work in the morning as much as I do. So uh, I'm pretty good with loving going to work in the morning. Do you actively try to diversify the types of music you work on just to avoid that very problem of being pigeonholed? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. You know, even to the point of, you know, there's times where, you know, there'll be a chunk in my calendar and I'm approached by two different kind of artists and one has a bigger budget than the other. And, but the bigger budget one is the stuff I've been doing a ton of for the last bunch of while. Uh, I'll actually go with the smaller budget project just to, and keep things exciting. And I think it bouncing around, not only sort of keeps it fun, but I think it also kind of makes me better at being a producer and things like that. Because you know, really, if you've been doing like Americana records for three months uh, and and then all of a sudden you're onto a jazz record or you're onto a metal record, you know, you're going to bring stuff to that party that's different than if you'd just done, you know, more of the same genre over and over again. Yeah. Plus it just, it really, uh, I think makes you a more well-rounded person because obviously the, I'm not saying that they're, they're vastly different, but I mean, there's a little bit different mentality that goes with hanging with jazz people as opposed to metal people or punk rock people or world music people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really important to me because that's my CD collection. I mean, my <laughs> album collection is insanely diverse and I just managed to, you know, hoodwink the universe into letting me get paid to, you know, work on all these different kinds of musics that I like. Let's talk geography for a sec. You're in the mountains, you said. Yes. Several months back, I bought a big cabin up in the Los Padres National Forest, which is uh, just north of LA. So, you know, I'm at like 5,800 feet. Uh, you know, we had a bear in front of the studio last night. So yes, and it's been wonderful. I love it. It's, it's beautiful up here. And a big part of it was, you know, I travel so much for my work. And also a lot of, so much of the work I do when I'm not traveling is people sending me stuff, uh, sending me files from all, all around the world. And there really wasn't a big compelling reason to keep renting commercial real estate in Santa Monica, California. And so I bought this big cabin and moved the studio up here and it's, it's been awesome. It's, it's a great vibe and, you know, for mixing and mastering, it's the best sounding room I've ever had. So it, it's been a really good thing, but you know, I've, but in the last six months, I mean, the last six months have been probably the busiest of my career and I've just been traveling so much that, uh, you know, I haven't had as much time even to work here as much as I'd like. Do you have a history with, with that location? Nope. <laughs> no, I, I, I like smaller towns. I like mountains. I used to live up in the Canadian Rockies. I was just kind of looking for something new and I bounced around a lot. You know, I was born in Washington, DC, lived in Richmond, Virginia, lived in Boston, lived in Canada. Seattle, England, LA. And so I've always just kind of moved around for new adventures and new opportunities whenever I could. The yeah. conversations that I keep having more and more, and especially recently, I was talking to my friend um, who's been on the show before, uh, mastering engineer, John Greenham, who is in LA. And we were discussing real estate and the price of, you know, the cost of living and all that. And really the conversation kind of started to boil down to, you know, as long as the internet connection is strong, you could virtually live anywhere you wanted to if you're, you know, mixing and mastering. And the the money you save by living in, a, in an area with a low cost of living, that money that you would normally would put out for your rent, your mortgage, whatever, you could be traveling around to all the different conferences, to uh, different areas to see different music festivals. You could, there's a lot you could do with that ex extra money and really have a, a more enriched life from that perspective. And we were both just kind of going, you know, he's, he's in Los Angeles, I'm outside of San Francisco, and both of us were like, hmm, that sounds lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the funny thing about it was too, is again, I had this nice studio in Santa Monica and it was, I was just stunned at how few people were actually coming to attend sessions. People were just FTPing me stuff. Even people who lived 12 miles from the studio, 
were just FTPing me files and I was sitting there working alone. And the funny thing is now that I've got this place up in the mountains because nobody's coming to sessions anymore, I actually have more people coming to sessions <laughs> uh, than I did in Santa Monica. I have no rhyme or reason for that, but it's it's kind of fun. Do you think that has something to do with the retreat aspect of of your situation that, oh, hey, we can go work with Ronan in the mountains. How cool. Yeah, I think I I think so. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, something interesting and different or just the randomness of the universe. You know, you know my, my first client, once I set the place up, you know, flew in from Peru. <laughs> so, uh, and so, uh, yeah, and I've got guys coming up from LA on Saturday and yeah, somebody flew in from Texas a couple months ago. And yeah, so I actually have a lot of people coming to sessions now, which which is fun because I mean I like people and I'm you know, I I think sessions are more creative when you've got the artists around rather than sort of FTPing stuff and waiting for notes. I love being able to throw ideas back and forth with the the artists, get a really good idea of, you know, what their vision is and what kind of things, you know, put big smiles on their face and which kind of things, you know you don't. And, uh, I, I, I like that. And I, I like people. So, uh, I'm, I'm totally good with that. I want to talk about the, the, the structure of your, your, your career, your business as it exists today. How do you manage to get these clients from all these different areas? Uh, what are you doing to keep the ball rolling, so to speak? Well, I think part of it is again, even from the beginning, I've always been proactive about, uh, you know, trying to tap into music that excited me or scenes that excited me. You know, if I found out there was a cool scene someplace in the world, I'd save up money for a plane ticket and just drop myself into that town and, you know, for a week and see if I could meet people and get things happening. Um, and you know, part of it is again, just luckily once you get to a certain level and have your name on the back of enough records. Uh, it gets a little bit easier because, oh, we want to get the guy who worked with XYZ artist. Mm -hmm. uh, and that makes things a little easier. But I mean, but also too, and honestly, another big part of it was, you know, the whole concept of, you know, what we're doing now. I mean, you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the whole concept of like audio blogging and things like that was a genre that didn't exist before I started doing it. And especially when I started doing it, it was such a new and novel thing that, uh, you know, all of a sudden in a weird way, I became kind of a rock star mm -hmm. to people. Cause I was that guy on the internet talking about music stuff. And I'm like, no, really the rock stars are, let me, I can show you rock stars. And that really exposed me to a lot of people in a, in a different and unique way. I mean, now it's pretty much, you know, once somebody has been recording for, you know, a month or two, it's time for them to start their own podcast to do <laughs> you know, audio training. But, uh, uh, when I started it, it was, uh, it was kind of a different and unique thing that people got really excited about. And I think it, it put me on the radar of a lot of people who might not otherwise, uh, have heard about me. And then of course found out kind of the work I do and had a chance to decide whether or not they, they like what I do and things like that. Let's talk about that. The audio blogging and, and podcasts and YouTube and all that. I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of us and, and I, put myself yep. in that category being a podcaster and I could name a ton of people. I'm sure, you know, the same people. Um, uh, oh yeah. A lot of great ones. A lot of great ones. Yeah. I want to ask you about your feelings of, well, let's just fact is fact. There's going to be trolls. There's inevitably going to be that contingent of people that are going to be the ones putting the nasty comments on the YouTube channel or emailing you with, you know, nasty things to say, because whether they think what you're doing is, is incorrect or they disagree with the technique or the information, I'm not saying that they do with you, but I'm saying that the, all of us in general, that can happen. How do you approach that? How do you deal with that? Um, well, I've been surprisingly lucky. Um, you know, the amount of sort of trolling and nasty stuff I get is way less than one would expect, which I've been pretty happy about. And usually it's dumb stuff. Like you look like fat Jesus or something like that. And <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. Whatever. <laughs> um, you know, I actually try, you know, there's, there's certain things where it just, it seems like these random streams of just cuss words, which I'm like, okay, that's kind of entertaining. And, uh, 
the, the one, actually the toughest one for me is when people kind of go after me about technical stuff and they're just completely wrong or, wow, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, well, I've kind of made a couple hundred more records than you have. So I kind of have some perspective on this and yeah, I, I try actually hard to be kind of good to people in a way like, Hey, well, here's my perspective of where I'm coming from. And that, that usually kind of kindness usually shuts most people up. Mm -hmm. But my favorite trolling was this guy who just ripped on me. I, I kind of threw up the a camera. I was working over in Italy on some record and I had, Oh, I want to share some information about mastering that's off the top of my head right now. And so I just set up a camera, it had bad lighting and everything like that. And it's a good video, you know, 50,000 people have watched it or whatever, but some guy just ripped me about the, the, the quality of the lighting and this film work and just, you know, how wrong it was of me to, you know, let all this slack and blah, blah, blah. And like, he just really dragged me over the coals. I'm like, and I'm always kind of curious who these people are. So I went kind of figured out who he was and looked him up. And he is a guy who would work. His biggest credits were working on some early John Waters films. And <laughs> I thought, uh, Okay. <laughs> and that, that just made me so happy. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to get raked over the coals to have somebody who's worked on John Waters films come at you, that's kind of fun. And to come after me for the quality of the, you know, cinematography, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but for the most part, again, I've, I've been pretty lucky. And I think also is my attitude about a lot of this stuff is, Hey, this is what's worked really well for me. Check it out. You should try it on your own thing. And people who disagree with that, it's all cool. I mean, I'm not, uh, there's very few things where I really get on a high horse about and, you know, just say, you know, my way is right and anyone else's way is wrong. There's very, very few subjects where I feel that way. It's mostly, hey, these are sounds I dig and this is how I get them. Or, hey, this has been a good tool to help me, you know, uh, solve some technical problems I run in into. So, and luckily in Trollville, of course, people now hear this and just start, you know, bombarding me just for fun. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Ronan Chris Murphy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break here with our friends over at Audio Technica for a second. I want to bring up something that uh, we actually never talk about on the show, uh, having to do with wireless microphones. There was a change, and I don't know a whole lot about this, so I'm not going to claim to be the expert by any stretch, but in the United States, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, made some changes that affect the 600 megahertz wireless band. So the long and short of it is, is in the summer of 2020, uh, that's when a lot of these changes are going to go into effect. So if you have questions about that and you're a location sound person who uses wireless mics, or even if you're not a location sound person, if you use wireless mics and you might have some wireless mics that operate in this frequency spectrum, you might want to go over to Audio Technica's website, go to audio-technica.com and below there is an FAQ 600 megahertz little link you can click that's at the bottom click on that and there's a bunch of uh questions and answers and there's also some links to the um the fcc's uh broadcast initiative auction page which is uh really the source of all of this confusion and all that so get it figured out get it figured out now uh and obviously if you're out looking or if you're shopping for used wireless products uh, this is something you want to watch out for. You don't want to buy something that, uh, you know, falls into this range and then find out later on, oh, I'm clashing with whatever it is, a television station or a, uh, a first responders, you know, emergency type frequency, whatever. So check that out. That's at audio-technica.com. Audio-technica, of course, uh, doing the right thing there and uh, answering people's questions and keeping us all uh, well-informed of the situation there. So, yeah. Well, let's get back into it here. Let's uh, talk again with our friend, Ronan Chris Murphy, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's talk a little bit about your different activities Obviously, you make records, but you also do this recording boot camp thing, which seems to be a pretty prominent thing in your life. It is actually. I mean, the reality is still my life is 90% a guy that makes records. Uh, so anyone who like kind of follows my videos and stuff will notice like the last six months, there's been virtually non-existent because I've been, you know, working, you know, 12, 
15, 18 hours a day, <laughs> seven days a week on, on juggling a whole bunch of records right now. But yeah, back in 2003, I started this recording bootcamp business and kind of wanted to do something that fit in that niche that wasn't, you know, the big recording school kind of thing. And at the time, I think me and Michael Wagner were kind of the two guys really doing it back when I started. And I'd, I'd love one of these days I want to go take his because it'd be awesome to hang out and just steal his tricks for a week. But I started doing it and I, and I love doing it because, you know, I love teaching, but I would never not sure I'd want to ever be a teacher in an institution or anything like that, like an official school. So it's great, you know, get to hang out with a bunch of people and talk music, talk recording, the kind of things I hang out and talk about with my friends over dinner anyway. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really cool to be able to sort of share, share this with people and, uh, you know, and obviously it's a business. I make money from it, but you know, one of the really fun parts is that thing where you just see people's, their work transformed. Cause the reality is what I do in my recording boot camps is, you know, it's really trying to get people to really understand core fundamentals on a deep level. And because that's where really so much of the magic of great engineering comes from, or, you know, or great production is really understanding the fundamentals. So, cause a lot of times, you know, we've got this situation in the online world. I was used like a great example. Somebody say, Hey, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble getting, you know, my vocals on this pop record to really be prominent and punch out. And so of course, you know, the internet universe will have all these, well, you need to run it through some spatializer, multiband compression, side chained off the something and, you know, MS decoder. And I'm like, my, my brain can't even get around what they're talking about. When in reality, a lot of times the answer is like, oh yeah, what, try cutting a little mid range out of the guitar. <laughs> and it's like, and that's really a boring answer because people really want the, you know, high tech fancy answer. But reality is, you know, scooping out a little bit of frequency from the guitar is usually a more powerful tool to get a vocal and a pop or a rock record to, to pop out of a mix than any other fancy multi-band side chainy eyeserizer kind of thing that you could do to it. And so my sort of mission in terms of what I do in terms of sharing knowledge has been to try and sort of share that sort of stuff because that really is the nuts and bolts. And, you know, unfortunately that's not very whiz bang and exciting. It doesn't make for great headlines, <laughs> um, but, uh, um, but truth is, you know, when you look at the works of the great engineers, it's not that they use super high tech plugins or hardware or something to do X and Y it's that they made really smart decisions about fundamental techniques and they used them really well. And sure that other five or 10% of the, you know, fancy stuff is great and fun to do. But that's not the core of it. Who is the main audience in your workshops in terms of experience level? Kind of all over the map. I mean, I, I interview everybody before they attend one of my, because I, I do a few different things. I've got the, uh, you know, my six day recording boot camps, kind of the, the main flagship thing that I do. And so I kind of weed people out. Absolute beginners, it's just not right for them. So I want people to have their hands kind of dirty. I want them to already be super frustrated by a compressor. When they get to me, I don't want them to learn about what is a compressor from me. I want, I want to be the guy that helps them figure it out. So we sort of weed out, you know, people without much experience. And I warn a lot of people with a lot of experience, but I will take them. You know, I've had people through, you know, my program who've, you know, produced stuff for major label artists and things like that. And so I've got everything from real hardcore professionals to aspiring professionals you know, to people who I, I kind of say recording replaces bass fishing in their life. It's the thing they do to, you know, unwind or have a great time with their friends on the weekends. And to me, they're all great. I mean, cause you know, I, I never claim to do, you know, come on in for career training. I'll make you a star. It's like, nah, you, you figure that part out. I'll teach you to how, teach you how to make your mixes work better. And you know, yeah, I'll teach you smart engineering techniques that'll be less frustrating and get you better sounds and things like that. So, so I do those, I do them in California and I usually do at least one a year over in Europe. And the other thing that I've started doing in the last couple of years is this mountain recording retreat, which, um, actually a couple of your recent guests do with me. So, uh, yeah, Peterson, uh, Goodwin and Brad, who've been your recent guests, um, you know, they're, uh, they're two of the mentors I do it, but there's a beautiful old resort, uh, in the mountains of West Virginia, uh, just like 90 minutes to two hours from Washington, DC. 
And it's this amazing gathering of people where we just hang out, eat great food and, you know, share knowledge and play golf and things like that. It's, it's, it's a concept I came up with a couple of years ago and it's worked out better than I ever expected just in terms of the experience of it all. I'm getting ready to, uh, in September to do mix with the masters with Chad Blake. Nice. They had a similar kind of weeding out process an interview mm -hmm. process where you had to fill out some information and they'd say, we'll, we'll get back to you. <laughs> Don't call us. We'll call you kind of a thing. And yeah, <laughs> I was, I was pleasantly surprised that they came back and said, we think you have an interesting background. We think you'd be a good addition to the, to the group. So, you know, please join us. I think what I was looking for was some type of next level transformation. I've been doing it for, I don't know, over 20 years and I don't mm -hmm. have a lot of uh, big records to my name, but I know what I'm doing. So some of my friends actually were like, really, why are you going? And I'm like, because you can learn <laughs> things from somebody else. It's good oh, to learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I was very close to applying to the Andy Wallace one. Uh, yeah. Just to get to sit and pick Andy Wallace's brain for a week. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I was, I was too busy actually making records at the time. It didn't work out, but, but yeah, I mean, I do get to take a little credit. We were the first ones to do because I do in Italy, I do a week long in an Italian villa. And so, you know, couple years later there was the week long in the french villa <laughs> but but it's it's cool what they do and yeah the andy wallace one was really tempting uh to go to him and tom they just did one with tom lord algae which i would love to get and sit and watch what tom lord algae does for a week yeah well i i have to say i um i can't wait i'm very excited mm -hmm. to go and As it's you should gotten be. me to reevaluate a lot of things and really just think I'd like to get your, your thoughts on, um, the concept of the beginner's mind where no matter how much experience you may or may not have everything that you experience, you treat as a new experience rather than, Oh, I've been doing this forever. I know how to do this kind of, you know, throwing, throwing, you know, concept where you dismiss new information because you've been doing it for a long time, not you specifically, but yeah, yeah. Pe people fighting against that. What What are your thoughts on the beginner's mind? Oh, I mean, I think it's so important and it's kind of sad the people who, you know, feel that they can't learn anything. I mean, for me, for me in particular, you know, I'm mostly self-taught. And so I didn't, you know, I had a kind of a weird thing where I, you know, got a job at a studio as in kind of intern. And within a couple of months, I was a first engineer. And uh, so kind of never looked back. So I'm still at a point where, you know, had I had a chance to come up and spend, you know, a couple of years in the system, studying under men and women who have a lot more experience than I would, there's a lot of things I would have learned. And I'm still, it's kind of crazy, you know, with hundreds of albums under my belt and whatever decades of doing this, that I'll just hear somebody talk about some technique and my mind will just sort of boom, like, oh my God, how did I not know that for the last 30 years of making records. So I, I still have that stuff happen to me on a, on a pretty regular basis. Even just somebody says, oh yeah, I did, you know, I've been whatever boosting or cutting this frequency on this instrument a lot lately. And it does an interesting thing to where the snare drum sits. And I've never tried that. And so of course run into my studio and start tweaking around and like, oh my God, this is monumental. And so I'm constantly still learning stuff like that. So I will, you know, um, again, I'm really busy, so I, I don't have as much time to be a student as I would like uh, of things. But any chance I get, especially, you know, for engineers who, whose work I really admire or who have a vastly different experience than I do, you know, I love getting to sort of suck knowledge from these people. And uh, I think if I ever felt I had it all figured out, this would probably be less interesting or exciting to me. Mm -hmm. I, I that's I feel that every time I, I get a new guest on, just my thirst for asking questions about how they do things and how they run their life, as you know, from a lifestyle perspective, it's mm -hmm. just it, it's it's constant. Like you know, the minute I realized, okay, I get to talk to Ronan, you know, I just really started to dig deep and fast into what you do, even though I. I've kind of followed you for a while and I, I really just, I have a, a, 
a deep appreciation for all the points of view that, I, that come across on the show as a result. Oh, absolutely. I'd like to talk to you about the tools we use, the gear we use. Do you have any overarching philosophies? Um, I guess if I had, if I had a, a couple, one would be I try really hard to not make things more complicated than they have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of people who are really drawn to making things complicated as kind of a weird fetish. And, you know, I'm, I try really hard to, um, just keep things as simple and streamlined and, you know, the quality as good as I can, you know, on the way in and on the way out. And so, you know, that's not to say that I won't do really complicated stuff or I can't do complicated stuff, but, you know, I've sort of found that the more you keep things simple, the more creative things tend to be and the more things sort of stay focused on the music and the creativity. I just a couple of weeks ago wrapped up a record for a heavy metal band called Guar. So this um, big theatrical oh, yeah. thing. And we, yeah, we just finished their record for Metal Blade. And, you know, it's a very much a guitar record. And 95% of the guitars on that record are a single SM57 on a single Marshall 412 cabinet. And, you know, we swapped heads, we swapped guitars, pedals, pickups, all those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, I'm always looking to see what is the most streamlined way that I can do this. You know, when, when I'm working with a drummer like Terry Bozio, you know, I'm trying to see how simply can I approach this? Because to me, again, being simple isn't being lazy. Being simple to me keeps things more focused on the things that are really important. And uh, when you start making things more complicated, I, it really tends to start to pull a lot of energy and focus onto the complicatedness of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm always trying to do that. And, but I'm also trying really hard in terms of the way we approach things, uh, to just honor the situation and honor the environment. You know, I love great mic preamps. I love, you know, great converters. I love all of those kinds of things, but you know, if a four track cassette kind of honored the situation, I'm totally fine with doing that. I would have no problem if, you know, there was a record and just for whatever reason, four track cassette made the most sense to make this record. I'd be like, great, let's make this record, you know, cause I'm like, I'm involved in another record where, you know, some, some of the stuff we're doing it in super high end studios, uh, and lots of the other parts of the record, you know, we're running around with a laptop and an Apogee duet and a couple sure microphones, you know, recording in, in churches and alleyways and things like that. So um, hmm. that's kind of a big thing. Like I try really hard not to get too dogmatic about, you know, it has to be done this way. That's actually an interesting thing. I just did a record a while back where having a conversation with one of the guys and he's like, I, I'm, I'm really surprised you're recording us this way. You know, I, I thought, you know, you do it this way. And I thought, I, I get why he said that. But for me personally, I think, well, that's kind of nuts because I've never recorded your band before. We've never been in this situation with this collection of songs with this amount of time you guys have had to rehearse and all of that. And there, there's some people who make records very dogmatically, like this is the mic you use on <laughs> this instrument. And you know, the band has to do it this way or has, and I just think that's just a concept that I can't even wrap my head around. It doesn't bother me that other people have that working method, but it just, I can't wrap my head around that I would go before pre-production work, having already determined, you know, how I would mic the drums or determine, oh, how, are we going to cut the band together live? Or are we going to do it piece by piece? Or will it be to a click or not to a click? It's like, how, how can you make any of those decisions and honor the music, you know, in advance before you get there? So for me, that's one of the things I try really hard to do is to be able to look at each record and go, you know, what's the spirit of it? What, what's this collection of songs about? Where's the band at? you know, in the trajectory of their creative, creative output and really try really hard to go, okay, this is the task at hand. This is the collection of people we have, the collection of songs we have, you know, how can we put this, you know, even this is the budget we have. Um, how can we put this together in a way that really, you know, serves the art, serves the artist and all those kinds of things. So I would say if, if I have something, it's try and keep things simple as I can to focus on the important stuff. And try not to get too dogmatic about stuff, about how stuff should be done or what gear should be used. Uh, because I think that gets in the way of music and art. And that's kind of why I'm in this mess. I like that. Let's talk about money. Do you have an overarching 
view of money and how you deal with money in regards to the arts, number one. And Mm -hmm. number two, do you, once again, kind of a career-based question, how do you keep the ball rolling financially? I'm pretty blessed. I mean, probably financially last year was probably the best year of my career. Uh, And and very little of that was training. It was mostly just making records and things like that. Uh, and also, again, I work in, you know, video games and things like that. I don't think I can say anything from an ivory tower because, you know, I've certainly gone through years where I'm, you know, there is the proverbial, like going through the couch, you know, looking for change to see if you can get to that six inch subway sandwich. Yeah. Um, a lot of my life has been there, <laughs> you, know, li- you know, living on couches, scrounging for money. Uh, and things like that. Um, but I think it's, I don't, I hope it's not cocky to say really hard work. I mean, some of it is dumb luck. I mean, there's, I know men and women who are more talented than I am with cooler credits and stuff, you know, who are having trouble finding work. But I think part of it is I love to work and it's pretty normal for me to work six to seven days a week. And if I'm not working on a record, I'm working on things like Ronan's recording show, creating Ronan's recording show or finding time to, you know, create videos or find times to reach out to other artists. So it's kind of something about constantly working at it. Hmm. And I think really one of the advice I give a lot of sort of younger people getting into this is, you know, that if you don't work harder than virtually everyone, you know, that you're not really serious about this. And because people a lot of think, oh man, it'd be cool. Yeah, I'd like to be a producer. Yeah, right on. It's like, great. And But I think you really need to approach it as, you know, like being a professional athlete, you know, because, you know, you say, okay, great. An NBA player, right? They're only playing like working nine hours a week. It's like, no, no, they're working <laughs> seven days a week because, they're at the gym and even when they're not working, they're making choices about what's their diet and things like that. So you're constantly working at it and you really need to approach it that seriously. Like, Cause if you had a friend who said, Oh yeah, I think I'm going to play major league baseball. And, uh, cause I, I, I like to, you know, hit, hit baseballs with my buddies. And I was like, okay. And if that person isn't, you know, waking up at 6am to, go to the gym and working with baseball coaches and all of those sorts of things, they're not really serious about it. And I think it's the same thing in music. If you're in like getting into recording, if you don't work harder than virtually everyone, you know, then you're not really serious about this. And, you know, guys, my age are lucky because when I got into it, it was way easier than it is now because only some weirdo freaks got into this. And now, you know, you've got the high school captain of the football team, also wants to be a record producer you've got all these people trying to get into it. And, you know, you know, back when I was a boy, you know, if you had a four track cassette and a couple mics, oh, that's the guy who can record our band. You know, you were that guy in town and there was ways to get into it. And, you know, if there was a studio in town, there weren't that many people trying to get in for the scrubbing the toilets job. Uh, but now the, the amount of people who want to get into this and the massively shrinking pool of actual paid work, it's really, really challenging. And again, for people who want to do this professionally, which isn't the only valid reason to do this, but yeah, if, if you have regular days off, you're just, you're not really serious about this, you know, cause you have to, cause I'm still, you know, when I've got downtime, you know, I'm working, I'm, I'm testing gear, I'm trying new techniques and you know, studying records and reading books. And I'm constantly doing it again. Last year's been nuts. I barely have downtime for anything, but yeah, when I'm not, I'm, I'm constantly trying to do it. And, you know, people who approach this passively for the most part, aren't really serious about that. If they want to do this professionally, if they just love doing it, if it replaces bass fishing in their life, that's awesome too. It's that's, at least, if not more valid than trying to do this professionally. Do you have family, significant other relationship that, that you, that competes for that this time? Luckily I have a significant other who's worked in the music business longer than I have. So my life makes sense. (laughs) So, but it's a huge challenge for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, throughout life, it doesn't make a lot of sense to people. 
if if you're not in it. Because really the kind of thing like, yeah, I'm going to work till 3 a.m. like every night for the next three weeks and I'm not really getting paid very much. Normal people don't look at that and go, oh, that's rational. But, you know, the twisted people like us who do this weird music stuff go, oh, right on. Cool, man. That's smart. <laughs> um, so it's it's definitely a huge, huge challenge. But also, I mean, part of this is, you know, I've lived a lot of places around the world. I still spend you know, I've, I've been away for like of this year so far, I've been, you know, away from home for more than half of it. And so it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. And, you know, I've got at least another month or two away already booked out for next year, like the rest of the year. So it's a huge challenge for a lot of people, but yeah, you need to find really a person who, who understands it. Or that being said, I, I actually know people who've managed to carve out a life uh, and be successful. Like, listen, most important thing for me in the world is being able to pick up my kid from school. I don't have children, but I know people who do that and they've managed to work out a career going, okay, I could do this. I could do mastering work remotely. Okay, great. And and find ways to make that work. But uh, yeah, uh, but it is a huge, huge challenge. And, you know, if if you have family that doesn't understand it or significant relationships, it's really tough. Or, you know, you end up with life stuff, you know, once, you know, if you've got kids and things like that, they're a pretty massive priority and it's a big decision to (laughs) decide how much, uh, you know, that trade-off of serving the work and serving the family. And, uh, I, there's no easy answer to that for anybody. Okay. Total goofball question. Good. Miking Terry Bozio's drum set. How is uh, it done? It's because it's quite massive. If, if it's the drum set that he always shows off in, in public, the big DW kit. As few mics as possible. First time I recorded Terry, he had four kick drums, 16 toms, and 40 cymbals. Oh but, my. <laughs> but here's the, here's the thing is that first record, my first time ever working with him. And again, I was trying to use as few mics as possible as I, I always do. And apparently I was the first engineer to sort of scale, ever work with him to scale back, like going, you don't need to mic every Tom when you have a player who balances brilliantly and is the best drum tuner I've ever known in my life. And so, you know, I tried to approach it like, almost more orchestrally think of, you know, a a bank of toms is sort of like, oh yeah, here's the viola section. Like if you're doing orchestral work, you don't put a mic on every viola, you mic the violas. And so I kind of approached it that way. But first time I was doing, I was doing a record that was uh, with him, uh, Tony Levin and guitarist Steve Stevens uh, called Bozio Levin Stevens. And Steve Stevens, not only amazing guitar player, but actually a great engineer in his own right as well. But anyway, I'm I'm setting up, I'm using a lot of my usual suspects and things like that. And the drums just weren't happening. I wasn't getting a nice balance between the cymbals and the toms and everything I liked. So I'm moving things around, changing, moving around, moving around. And then Terry says, so how are those cymbals working out for you? And I said, I got to tell you, I haven't got it yet, but trust me, don't worry. I'll, I'll make this happen. I'll get it. I'll get it good. And of course, I'm really nervous. My first time ever working with him. And he said, okay, no problem. I trust you. He said, do you want me to swap them out? This is Terry Bozio of the 40 symbols. Um, and uh, I, said, I said, you've got another set? He said, oh yeah, I've got, I brought two others with me. Two, another <laughs> so, set, two other sets of 40? Yeah. Oh. And so we went and swapped them out. And after that, I had the drum sound up in about five or 10 minutes because it was just the nature of the, the first symbols he had which were a little too dark and we're starting to compete in the frequency range with the toms. And then we swapped them out to a thinner, brighter kind of one where there wasn't as much low mid resonance in the cymbals and they cleared out that space. And that's one of the things too, where people don't realize that so many of the greatest musicians in the world, you think, oh, they're artists with a capital A, they have their thing. You know, all you do is bow down to that. And that's almost never the case, you know? Again, a drummer like Terry Bozio, who's, again, best drum tuner I've ever known in my life. And, you know, we're working on something and saying, hey, you know, that snare's not really working like that for this tune. He's like, great, let's figure out a way to work on it. You know, working with Steve Morse, you know, I was brought in to mix an album for him. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of having trouble with this guitar sound. He's like, oh, great, let's let's recut it. Let's find a great guitar sound that works. And most (laughs) of the great musicians uh, 
are very, very cool. And most of the really snotty, this is my thing, screw you attitude is from amateurs. You know, most of the pros are fantastic to work with. And well, so with the, yeah. with that size of a drum set and approaching it orchestrally, did you mic the cymbals separate from the toms? And that one, I end up doing a lot of tom miking from the bottom, just because there's so much. There's basically no space to get drums in there. So mostly, I had a. I end up running two different stereo pairs because the the next time I recorded him was easier. But on that first one, he actually had the cymbals in tiers. So he basically had level one of cymbals and then level two. And uh, I'm a big fan of catching as much of the drum set as I can, you know, from a stereo pair. But just because of the nature of how different those were, uh, that didn't really work on that record. So I ended up having to kind of work around with multiple stereo pairs on that. So cymbals, in a sense, there was mostly drum set, but different kind of support and reinforcement. I think on that one, if I remember correct, I had about 13 or 14 total inputs on the drum set. So every kick drum got its own mic. Actually, on that one, he had these sort of resonant things too. And I think those had their own internal mics. I think I ended up muting those because they just, we had a bass player in the band and we didn't really need any of that. But yeah, that ended up being about 13 or 14 uh, inputs. But I've got a recording where a mix I did of Terry Bozio with three mics and it sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> The Glenn Johns technique on, on Terry Bozio. <laughs> Almost. Yeah. I mean, and it was, oh. and truth is, I mean, it was, it was a section of a song cause, um, it's, it's pathetic how much I've abandoned it, but I'm working on my own album and Terry's one of my drummers. And so granted where I did this is a section, a performance section where he's only playing one of the kick drums. So it's just kick drum and a spaced pair of sure KSM 32s. And yeah, I put this sort of mix together of just that, that's, there's nothing on it but compression. And it sounds amazing because you had, you know, good mics, good mic prees in front of one of the greatest musicians in the world. I was just watching some uh, video footage of uh, Terry playing with Frank Zappa when he was just a skinny little kid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Adrian Blue was in the band and just seeing Terry just putting out an incredible amount of energy and mm -hmm. to see him to this day in the, the few things I've seen him in, I've never seen him live, but he seems to continually put out that kind of energy. He is. Yeah. I mean, he's got way more energy than, you know, most people 25 years younger than him. Uh, and the thing about him, he's a real lover of the craft. And, you know, the funny thing for me with Terry is, you know, he's, He's this incredible technical virtuoso guy. But for me, where Terry just slays for me is him just, you know, sitting nice backbeat. His his sense of phrasing is so beautiful that, you know, he can just do 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 and it's just like, ah, oh, tears your heart out. And so yeah, I mean, I love all his fancy technical stuff, but it's to me, it's the feel that makes Terry Bozio so special. You know, the way he'll sort of like push cymbal attacks and then lay back, you know, in on this, you know, lay back right on the pocket in the snare, stuff like that's where Terry, Mo Terry Bozio is just so mind blowing. We're almost out of time, but I do, I have a few more questions for you. And, um, one of them is, do you have a manager? I do. Luckily my significant other has a background in management. <laughs> and so, uh, she actually handles, you know, a lot of the, those kind of logistics that makes my, my life a whole lot easier. So, that's, you know, I've, that's great. Yeah. I, I haven't sent an invoice in, in a decade. So, oh, wow. <laughs> which, uh, which is really, really nice. The studio that you have in the mountains is a couple hours away from Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, I, I can get to the valley in about 70 minutes. Oh, that's so not I bad. Can, oh, yeah. If I want to get down to Van Nuys or anything like that, I can, I can be in Van Nuys in about 70 minutes. And it's a whole different world. What is the best website for people to look you up on? Recordingbootcamp.com will, uh, will get you to <clears throat> almost anything else. Uh, or my, uh, my production company is Veneto West, V-E-N-E-T-O-W-E-S-T.com. Mm -hmm. um, but Recording Bootcamp is easy to remember and spell. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, if, you, uh, if, if you type that into Google or... You know, if you type Ronan Chris Murphy <clears throat> into Google, I'm pretty easy to find. Excellent. Well, Ronan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's 
I've known who you are for quite some time. And, and when you agreed to do this, I was very, very happy. And uh, I think you've laid out some great information today. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, you take care and thanks again. All right. Thank you. Good night. Ronan Chris Murphy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really cool to talk to him. And uh, wow. How about getting a studio in the mountains? That sounds like a really fun idea. Hmm, might have to think about that. Anyhow, uh, we are out of time, so we have to thank everybody. We always start with our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale. So let's thank Cliff. Thanks, Cliff. There we go. And let's thank Chuck Smith and Cole Williams and our sponsors, of course, Lawton Audio, Vocal Monitors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. And I appreciate you listening. Come again and take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.